This is uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Uh, Many of you will have uh, been in Bible study groups or led Bible study groups over the years and uh, Bible study groups by their nature have those sort of high moments where everyone's totally engaged and involved and at other times people are sort of, you know, waning and losing interest and uh, if you're a Bible study leader, you need a few tricks just to get people back on track and engaged. Can I suggest to you raising the topic of predestination is a surefire way to do it. Uh, You think things are getting a little tired or whatever, just... Just get the conversation going in that direction and you'll have no trouble at all. What are we talking about when it comes to predestination? I'm going to throw up a definition on the uh, screen for you. This comes from Broughton Knox's book, The, uh, the Everlasting God. I'm not sure if it's in print now, but can I say this is a great book to read if you're wanting to look at a short but concise uh, introduction to the character of God. Uh, Broughton's a very clear sort of a writer. So what he says is from eternity God has chosen some for salvation in Christ but has left others to their own choice of rebellion against him. From eternity God has chosen some for salvation in Christ but led others to their own choice of rebellion against him. And can I say when you raise this sort of topic it stirs up all sorts of interesting reactions. So for some it's a topic of theoretical sort of interest or disinterest, you know, quantum physics, you know, it's sort of one of those, well, it's interesting. Um, For other people, it's a point of debate. Uh, They immediately want to get into the question of God's determining 
uh, authority as opposed to our free will. How can those two things possibly hold together? And then I think there's a a third group, and you can overlap in all these groups, I think, uh, who find this topic quite distressing. Uh, And one of the reasons they find it distressing is because they can immediately see that if it is God's choice to bring some people into his family, then why hasn't he exercised that choice in relation to people we love who aren't in the kingdom yet? Okay, it, It's a topic that generates all sorts of emotions, but normally they're quite strong emotions and debate. In the uh, Articles of Faith, so these were put together in 1562, Uh, sort of a concise summary of what it means uh, to believe. There's an article, Article 17, on the doctrine of predestination and election. It says this, The godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant and unspeakable comfort. Full of sweet, pleasant and unspeakable comfort. Now, can I say that generally has not been my experience when I've been talking with people about this topic. You know, people don't go, I feel so encouraged and warmed by this truth. Yet I want to suggest to you that actually should be the reality because predestination does take us to the very heart of who God is and for believers, that should be sweet, pleasant and of unspeakable comfort. Okay, so that's, that's where we're heading today. That's what I hope will be the outcome of what we talk about. We have to wrestle with some issues, but I hope the outcome will be that we'll be encouraged and strengthened and heartened. Let me pray, as just as we dig in. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a God who speaks to our hearts and minds, and you do it for our strengthening, our comfort, our clarity about who you are and how it is we can serve you. And we pray that you'll be with us this morning as we wrestle with the tough things, but Father, we pray it'll be helpful. Amen. Okay, there's an outline there. I'll I'll work my way through it, and hopefully it'll give you some idea where we're heading. I want to start off by talking about the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty just means that God is king, or he rules or controls. But of course, the question is, what sort of king is he? Uh, See, when you think about Queen Elizabeth II, right, she is the Queen of Australia, Okay, now, what does that mean exactly? Well, for most of us, we'd probably say not a huge amount, uh, you know, in terms of her day-by-day impact on what she does. So what sort of a king is God when you look at the Bible? What we discover is God is the one who is sovereign over creation. So back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're told in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The same sort of idea comes up repeatedly in the Bible. You go to a place like Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host, by the breath of his mouth, uh, God creates. But of course, to say someone creates doesn't necessarily, again, mean a huge amount. So I um, wrote along this this morning, right? This is something I created. Right when I was in year eight at school, just in case you can't work it out, it's meant to be a nut bowl, all right? And I have my name on the back here, just so to prove it, right? I did this, I created it, I gave it to my mother, she put it in a cupboard, 
for about four decades. And then uh, when I was around there one time visiting her, she had it on the bench and she said, I'm doing sort of a spring clean. I haven't used this for four decades, so I, I'm about to throw it out. But I thought you may want it back. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's what my mother thinks of my creative... Let me say this was the peak of my creative abilities. Uh, that's about as far as I ever got with that sort of thing. Now, the thing is, I, I couldn't have made this, <laughs> poorer though it is, without being supplied with the wood, right, the Moranti, uh, a woodwork teacher who helped me not make a worse job of it than what I did. You know, all those sorts of things were essential to my creative activity. What we discover with God, though, is that he creates the whole of the universe with a word, right? No raw materials. It's just him speaking things into existence. It's quite extraordinary, I think. But not only that, he sustains all that he's made. So if you go to Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses 29, it talks about God's ongoing creative authority. And not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. Same sort of idea in Psalm 139. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Uh, this is not a God who sets and forgets. You know, not a God who, you know, creates and then sits back just in his armchair, just, you know, just watching from a distance to see what happens. This is a God who sovereignly rules in a constant way over everything that he has made. He never loses control of his creation. Okay, that's the sovereignty of God. What I want to do now is talk about the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation or predestination. God's sovereign hand when it comes to choosing people into his family. Now, can I say, I'm just going to run through some verses very quickly to show you that the Bible is very consistently clear on this topic. God chooses people to be in his family. John 6, verse 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Or if we go to Acts chapter 13, verse 4, or Romans chapter 8, we're told there, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Now, that will inevitably, for many of us, raise the whole question of free will or what choice do I have in this whole process and how does that intersect with God's choice of me? Can I just get you to hold that? Just park it for a moment and I'll come back to it you know, very shortly. If I now turn to Ephesians 1, that's the passage that we just heard read, uh, let me just read it through again, just verses 4 to 6, and talk with you about some of the key ideas that come up here. He chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
to the prize of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. Now, hear what it's saying, chosen to be a Christian before the creation of the world. That's, that's what we're told. That's God's time frame. Chosen to be holy and blameless and to be in Christ is what God does. Predestined for adoption into his family. You know, it's strong, strong, strong with clarity on what God does here. But I want you to notice here too God's motivation. If you look at the end of verse 4 there, we're told that he's motivated by love. And the whole passage speaks of his grace, his mercy, his generosity, and his kindness. That's the motivation for why God chooses. And then you might sort of bounce back to the question of why can't it be that we choose God? And to understand the answer to that, you actually need to understand the trajectory of the whole Bible and need to see the way in which this is framed. How does the Bible explain why it can't be our choice? I want to flip you over to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to do a bit of Bible flicking for a while. All the verses will come up on the screen. Uh, but I think it will be helpful for us. And then we'll, um, we'll settle down and we'll talk a little more about what we're discovering. Okay? So Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3. Listen to the argument of how this, these verses flow. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And you understand that that summary argument at this point is saying a few really critical things. The first is that we're so damaged by sin we cannot choose God. Right? It's an impossibility. By nature, we reject God and that sin removes our capacity to choose. I used to own a um, 1995 Ford station wagon right? and uh, that was in the days you know, where you had AM, FM radio but the critical thing was having an aerial and uh, one time when my car was parked out in front of my, uh, my house, someone came along and just broke off the aerial. Okay, And it meant that I could not get access to those radio stations with that broken aerial. The way the Bible talks about humanity is we're like, uh, we're like that broken aerial. We, we don't, because we're broken in that way, we don't have capacity to connect with God of our own choice. It's a sin-marred relationship. And what that means is unless God does something about the situation we are in effect just roadkill. Do you know what I mean? Like we're cut off from God and nothing can be done about that situation. But at this point you might then say to me, uh, you know, wait a second, isn't that unfair? And what about free will? Okay, isn't that unfair? Uh, And don't I have some choice in my life and decisions? Surely it's the same when it comes to salvation. Let me pick up on the question of free will uh, for just a moment with you. 
what we tend to do is we tend to pit God's sovereignty against human free will. We tend to see those two things as competing with each other. If God is sovereign, then free will must be an illusion or alternatively, there must be a limited way in which God is sovereign which allows for the capacity for there to be some free will in the mix which I am able to exercise in my life. But I want to say to you that the Bible unashamedly holds both the sovereign authority of God together with the responsibility and choices that we make. And consistently the Bible just pushes them together in the same spaces. Uh, So the reason I actually picked up on this topic of predestination was when I met with the leadership team a couple of weeks ago, they said to me that Ian had been preaching through uh, the Joseph narrative at the end of Genesis. And uh, of course when you come to that Joseph narrative, there's a big thing about the sovereignty of God and the sinfulness of humanity. And I knew that Ian would have touched on that. And so I said, oh, what about if I spend a whole morning just talking about this issue of the sovereignty of God and free will? So that's where we went to. But I want to take you back now to uh, Genesis, uh, not to uh, do anything except underline what uh, was covered there by Ian just a few weeks ago. And just to see the way in which God holds together that sovereignty that he has with the responsibility of humanity. So I'm going to go to Genesis 45, verses 4 to 8. At this point, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. It's an evil, sinful act by his siblings. Uh, Then a famine occurs in Israel, and Joseph's brothers go to Egypt to get food. And by this point, Joseph is in leadership there. Okay, And at this this point in Genesis 45, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Let me read from verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they'd done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there'll be no ploughing or reaping but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here but God. So obviously if God sent Joseph there it wasn't the brother's fault. But it was. So if you come to Genesis 50, we get this summary statement in verse 20 of Genesis 50 about how do we to understand what's going on here. Genesis 50 verse 20, you intended to harm me, says Joseph to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the salvation of many people, the saving of many lives. So understand here, see, the Bible is so uncomplicated at this point, squeezing these two things side by side without any embarrassment at all. Joseph's brothers, they're not puppets. They don't escape their guilt because of the sovereign hand of God. But God does overrule in their evil to achieve his purposes 
and the good. And the good here is the salvation of many. And you'll know that this incident fits with the salvation history that leads us to Christ and the salvation for all of humanity. That's the reality. And can I say there are just stacks and stacks and stacks of examples in the Bible where we see this happening. I'm just going to take you to one more. It's about the last sort of flicking around we'll do before we start pulling a few things together, okay? I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. At this point, we have uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost coming out of Jerusalem and preaching a sermon to explain what has happened with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, Jesus has... um, been crucified, died and been raised from the dead and this is the first sermon after those events. I'm just going to read a small section uh, of that sermon from verses 22 to 24. Uh, Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Isn't that interesting? The the sinfulness of humanity coupled together with the overruling sovereignty of God. Okay. What I'm going to do is give you five statements that I think you need to hold in tension together as you think about this whole topic. I'll read them through twice, uh, and if you really want to get a hold of them later on, uh, I can make sure that I give them to you. So five things when it comes to sovereignty of God and free will. The first is uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not mutually exclusive or restrictive. Okay, that's the first one. Secondly, We're accountable for our decisions and our sin. Thirdly, God has sovereignty over us and our decisions. Fourthly, God's sovereignty isn't limited by our sin. And fifthly, God's sovereignty doesn't destroy our ability to make decisions. All five, I think, are biblically true and meant to be held together. Let me read them again really quickly before I press on and just talk about some of the implications. Firstly, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not mutually exclusive or restrictive. Secondly, we're accountable for our decisions, our sin. Thirdly, God has sovereignty over us and our decisions. Fourthly, God's sovereignty isn't limited by our sin. And then fifthly, God's sovereignty doesn't destroy our ability to make decisions. Now understand, we're not talking about God's sovereignty and human sovereignty. Those two things would be in competition with each other if we thought that was the case. We're talking about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we won't necessarily fully understand how they coexist. They're like two pieces of a much bigger jigsaw puzzle that we need to hold together Uh, and while they're outside the scope of our human experience it shouldn't surprise us that God surprises us at this point 
I mean, that's his nature and character. He's meant to cause us to fall down in awe. So that's the human responsibility, divine sovereignty. But then there's the question of fairness that I think is the emotional one that kicks in at this point. Uh, the, The last one about the sovereignty and responsibility stretches us in our thinking, but this one touches our heart. See, how could God choose some and leave others to a choice of hell? Uh, A few moments ago, we looked at uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and the way the Bible views our sin. All of us sin, and in Ephesians 2, we read, we're all by nature objects of wrath. That is, we all reject God and we we deserve the consequence of that rejection. But if you can't get your head around sin and your own sin, then this will seem very unfair, I think. Uh, But once you understand the comprehensive nature of a rebellion against God, then that actually will cause you to weep at your failure to honour the God who's created you and made you for a relationship with himself. And once you understand sin you do understand that salvation is not a question of fairness. It's the wrong word to attribute to it. If it was on the basis of fairness, do you know what would be fair? That no one got saved. That actually would be the fair outcome. You see, salvation is always totally by grace, mercy and generosity from God. Ephesians 1 verse 5. We're told in accordance with the pleasure of his will, verse 6, we've received salvation freely in the one that he loves, that is Jesus. Romans 9, it talks about, quoting from Exodus 33, where God says there, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's a generous gift of God. From time to time, uh, I'll buy Sue some flowers Actually, the other day, it was like we'd been married for over 40 years and I worked out what sort of flowers Sue liked. A uh, bit of a tragedy, really, given that. But from time to time, I buy Sue flowers and uh, she might occasionally say, oh, you shouldn't have, okay? But actually, I always know I should have. Uh, you know, uh, That's just the way the, these things work. When it comes to God's gift of salvation, right? you can say to God, oh, you shouldn't have, And it's always absolutely true. Do you understand? Of course he shouldn't have. He had no obligation to do it. It's purely a generous gift that flows out of his mercy and grace. God is uh, fair. And when you understand his generosity, then it causes you to be just overflowing with thankfulness And it will cause you to keep asking God to be kind to other people. And can I say, if you're here this morning, you don't know that grace and mercy of God, then the right response is not to say, how can this be fair? The right response is to say, please have mercy on me. Okay, that's that's actually the right response to this God. Let me just draw a couple of these threads together just really briefly. As, um, and I know we've, we've covered a fair bit of territory. First thing is, I want to encourage you to watch out for 
theology wobble or what I call God wobble. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, I, I said before I had a 95 Ford station wagon. I remember when I used to um, come down Wollonga Hill and when it you know, got to around uh, 100 kilometres an hour, I'd be driving down, I would, the wheel would start shuddering, you know, like that, you know, and uh, it was a signal, right, that I needed to get a, a wheel alignment. I think predestination tends to give people theology wobble or God wobble. It is the, the sort of topic that does that. You can't work it out. Uh, you can feel angry, even privately, because you know you're not allowed to be angry at God publicly. You know, so you do it privately. You know about why He hasn't been merciful to people you wish He had. Um, or it can cause you to be theologically angular. You know, if God is the one who saves everybody, I'll just sit back and he'll save whoever he wants. That's the end of it, you know. And you don't actually have any compassion on people around you. I think we tend to get this theology wobble, God wobble, because we forget everything else the Bible says about God at this point when we focus on this topic. And Ephesians 1, I think, just frames it so well for us. It explains how God blesses us in the Lord Jesus Christ, how God has mercy on us, how he shows us his grace, how he loves us in his son. And as you keep putting together this comprehensive picture of the character of God, and as you hold those things together, while you focus on the question of God's predestination and election, then you'll avoid God wobble. All right, you'll, you'll avoid that because you hang on to who he is. So let me just emphasize uh, the fact that predestination is all about the grace of God. If you know the forgiveness, uh, the, the adoption, the redemption through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you know it's only because of grace. Uh, there's no reason for arrogance or superiority but only thankfulness to God. See, it is freely given by God. Um, who, who's here that I haven't actually met? There probably are people. What's your name? Ali? Sally, I'm sorry, Sally. I want you to imagine, I was planning to do something like this, but I wasn't able to get around to it. I want you to imagine, Sally, I haven't met before, uh, but this morning I invited her out the front and uh, asked her to close her eyes, right, and say, do you trust me, Sally, you know, and stick out her hand, right, while she's got her eyes shut. I want you to imagine that I then popped a $100 bill into her hand and, uh, uh, and said, you can go and sit down. And then she tried to give it back to me. I said, no, 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 no I just... I thought I'd just like to give you $100. I actually, actually was thinking about doing that, but I didn't have enough time to get to the bank. And I'm not carrying, like any of you, notes in my pocket anymore. It's not that I'm cheap. No, I don't think that. <laughs> See, what obligation do I have for Sally? Or you can think, oh, well, maybe a little bit because she's a member of a congregation and the network and that sort of thing, even at that, that level of things. But, but generally you would just think, and Sally, she'd almost certainly want to give it back to me, you know, wouldn't you, Sally? Yeah, obviously. Uh, <laughs> But if, uh, but I'd insist that she kept it, you know. See, it'd, it'd be just a real act of unmerited sort of grace, 
at that point. Can I say, when it comes to God, just multiply that by a million in terms of the relational connection and obligation and the, the sum infinitely. And you have just a glimpse of the grace of God towards all of us in his son. And of course that means we have extraordinary security when it comes to our relationship with God. If you've believed in Jesus, then what you understand is that that is a work of God for your benefit. That's why you believe. And that can only make you amazingly thankful. I'm going to come back to um, Article 17. I I started with it. Uh, And remember what it says? That predestination, it's full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Do you see why that's the case? That this extraordinary generosity and grace of God fills us with assurance and confidence that if he's the one who's controlling the narrative and the destiny and his kindness towards us, then we can be full of confidence. Not arrogance, but real confidence. And I think that's the point in Ephesians. So when you read that first section of Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about predestination. Do you know how there isn't any sort of debate? What about free will? You know, blah, 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 blah. What's the tone? Read it through again yourself. What's the tone of that whole section? Praise be to God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You see, the right reflex response to the predestining, electing work of God in your life is just thankfulness. Thanks be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that we can wrestle with uh, some tough truths, some difficult things. And yet, Father, we thank you that even though uh, they're tough, uh, they actually fill us with confidence, uh, with thankfulness, uh, with a sense of security, and just awe at your wonderful character of mercy and grace. Uh, Father, we commend ourselves to you. We pray that you'll keep filling us with the knowledge of who you are, what you're like, and that we'll keep delighting in your goodness to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.